This week on the show, we have Dragonfly BSD's Hammer Encrypted Master Slave setup for you. We tell you of our second part of the BSD CAN recap that we have. Nomad BSD 1.1 RC1 is available. OpenBSD adds an LDAP client to its base system. FreeBSD with PNFS support now in head. Intel FPU speculation vulnerability has been confirmed and what some Unix command names mean in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 251, Crypto Hammer recorded on June 20th, 2018. Hi, I'm your host, Benedikt Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Glad to have you with us this week. Uh, we have cool headlines and a packed show for you, starting off with Dragonfly BSD towards a Hammer 1 master-slave encrypted setup with Lux, L-U-K-S. So we found this on it, and this is exciting for people who have yet to uh, use Hammer in a proper way or in an encrypted way even. So this is in our uh, Dragonfly BSD. So what's this all about? Right, uh, so if you weren't aware, one of the, the, the point of Hammer FS is more to actually be a, um, a distributed file system uh, to exist across multiple machines. And that's how, it, you know, it's not, well, it has some features that are somewhat related to um, ZFS. Uh, Hammer's goal is really to do other things. Um, and so this setup talks about actually having a master-slave setup uh, with HammerFS and, um, and then using the DMCrypt setup to actually have the partitions be encrypted. Uh, so um, they say, I want to share my experience setting up Dragonfly in a master-slave setup. Uh, so after a long time using a Synology NAS uh, for NFS, I decided it was time to rethink this setup um, because it had a couple of issues. First, you can't run NFS on top of uh, encrypted partitions very easily. I suspected I having some data corruption due to bit rot on the ext4 file system used in the Synology, uh, and the network card was stuck at 100 megabits instead of a gigabit, uh, mm. even after swapping the cables and switches and a bunch of other stuff. So, you know that's unacceptably bad performance. Uh, and, you know, a Synology is proprietary and even the bits that aren't are Linux. So you probably don't want that. So yeah. they say, I've been playing with Dragonfly in the past and knew about HammerFS. So it was a perfect excuse to actually try the setup. So uh, they kill the load uh, DM, which is the uh, Lux compatible crypto layer on Dragonfly. Um, set up the the crypto, um, basically format the disk and then open it with their uh, key, create a new HammerFS file system on it, uh, and then format and set up a second drive uh, and set up the slave there. I like the name uh, they chose, by the way, Fort Knox. Yeah. <laughs> um, then they mounted the drives uh, and ran the hammer pfs status command and took a look at it they uh, linked the slave to the master uh, and got the mirror stream going and they say after that uh, setting nfs uh, setting up nfs is fairly trivial uh, 
you know, after you get over the syntax of etc exports, um, and I said a few problems I had were uh, being able to unlock Lux partitions at boot time, uh, but they said that's an acceptable trade-off. Adding that you know Lux gives uh, much better security than the old uh, Synology setup, uh, and that sleeping doesn't really work, but you probably don't want your NAS to be sleeping anyway. Uh, I say in the end, overall, I'm happy with Hammer FS1 uh, and using that uh, on Dragonfly. And they said it's a neat Unix and a community is very friendly. Uh, he said even uh, Matthew Dillon provided him with a kernel patch to fix a broken ACPI problem he was having that, on his uh, machine. Uh, and they promised to post a follow-up uh, in six months once they've been using it for a while. Oh, excellent, yeah. Yeah, it, uh, it seems pretty straightforward with a couple of commands. You get your encrypted setup, and even in master-slave, that's that's pretty interesting. So yeah, definitely more Dragonfly people should uh, try this out or uh, adapt it to other BSDs because I think some of the uh, setup could also be done without Hammer. Uh, well, there's not many other file systems that would exist across two separate machines. You could use yeah. something like Hast on FreeBSD to have a block device that existed across two machines and then put whatever file system you want on top, but that's not quite the same thing. Mm. Yeah, this is... Uh, um, Hammer's specialty. Yep. Okay. So, uh, now, as we promised, uh, yeah. we shall talk more about uh, BSD Can, which is going on almost two weeks ago now. Yeah. So, <laughs> remember, last been that long. <laughs> uh, but then again, yeah. it's been so busy getting caught up after it that uh, it does seem like it's been a while already. Mm -hmm. And remember, last week we only covered. Uh, first two days, the tutorials yes. and Dev Summit, which already had enough material. Uh, but this uh, episode has the actual conference, the two days uh, that followed mm -hmm. those two. And yeah, basically, uh, it was a nice uh, conference overall. And the nice thing for us is basically, since we were at the uh, Dev Summit already, this smoothly went into the actual conference itself, because after the first um to the morning, you know, the morning session and in the afternoon there are some working groups, and after those, there's typically the registration desk at the Red Lion uh, for the second year now because of the number of people that show up mm -hmm. and they needed a bigger space, and so we went there and picked up our registration stuff quickly. We couldn't spend much time there because we had to get back uh, because the newbies, uh, newcomers orientation and mentorship session was there. Uh, led by Michael W. Lucas, uh, which he's done for the third time, I think, now? I think, yeah, I think this is the third time. Mm -hmm. So, uh, what's this session about? This is basically a, a session before the actual conference where a lot more people arrive just for uh, seeing the talks. And this one is basically intended for people who have never been to BSD CAN or never been to any BSD conference and um, might have some questions. What's this all about? How does this well, go? Not just that, but also it helps if you know a couple of people by name uh, mm -hmm. at the conference and have, know who to talk to and who's willing to have random people walk up to them and ask them questions and so on. Uh, yeah. But yeah, um, 
it was interesting. I heard from a couple of people that were at the Dev Summit or the tutorials where like, you know, I could have used this first timers talk on Tuesday night instead of Thursday night. Yeah, uh, for the Dev Summit itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe we can move this around for next year. Oh, that's a good feedback. So, uh, well, um, I think it makes most sense to have it on Thursday, but maybe we just have a second version of it on Tuesday. Mm, uh, we have a lot fewer people on the Tuesday, so maybe it's just like, hey, if you don't know where you are or what you're doing, meet here, and then we'll go have gelato or something. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, um, Michael explained the uh, six to one rule to everyone, which was new to me. I think he added that. Um, so, what's the six to one rule? It basically defines that you should have at least six hours of sleep, two meals per day. Two real meals. Re real meals, yeah. Not, not just, not just uh, snacking on whatever <laughs> is left over at the conference or whatever. Yeah. And the one stands for the number of showers that attendees should have at a minimum. So With uh, soap. With, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's, yeah, a must to, to have a nice conference for everyone. It's uh, And the hours of sleep, of course, is of uh, importance because you want to be fresh and not uh, just nodding off yes. on your computer uh, screen. Especially if you've been going to session since Wednesday. Um, mm. <laughs> can be a bit, uh, you can be a yeah. bit sleep deprived out, by the time. <laughs> I was out less late than previous years, but still too late on Tuesday and Wednesday. Not so much <laughs> Thursday. But. Yeah. Well, so it's a good rule. Six to one, hours of sleep, meals per day, and number of showers. So, and he also explained the partners program because there is um, a partners program led by his wife, Liz. Um, they basically go around town and see museums or other yeah, sightseeing. Uh, they did a science museum. They did the uh, art gallery, uh, the Royal Canadian Mint, where they make the coins and gold bars and so on. Um, you know, it's especially interesting in Canada because Canada is the standard. Literally, Canada is the gold standard for the purity of gold. <laughs> okay, they, they. I guess they don't get many samples to to try out at home, but at least it's uh, no. But there's a big one you can actually try to lift. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. And if you can lift that, you can keep it, or <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, okay. I think there's yeah, so uh, that's pictures. Good from last year of Michael Lucas trying to take it home and what happened to him. Yeah. Well, it's like pulling the sword out of the stone. Um, <laughs> it's not and yeah, so this is intended for the people, um, like partners who are not too interested in the actual conference yes, or the death summit. Know, the but, partners, widows, widowers, <laughs> orphans, all the other people that want to come with you when you travel to Canada, uh, but don't necessarily want to go to the conference. Yeah, and I, and I hear people saying, oh, they had such a good time, maybe next year I sneak out of the conference and attend their little Well, yes, when, when they, they had lunch at Coco's 77, or Coco 70, or whatever it's called, which is like a chocolate cafe. Uh, and I was like, okay. you went without me. That's That makes me sad. <laughs> Unforgivable. Yeah. <laughs> I cannot be in all the places at once. This is so unfair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay, so, but if you're considering next year's BSD canon you're like yeah well I don't know whether I should bring my girlfriend significant other or whoever yes bring them they will well, not well, be bored importantly you know, if, if it's more they won't let me go if I don't bring them and they'll be bored I'm like no they won't be bored it'll be fine yeah it's uh, something for everyone yeah we, we kind of proved that with uh, when we had EuroBSD con in Malta and then Paris oh yeah times all of a sudden there were 
a lot more people showing up that wouldn't have normally showed up. Uh, and it was because suddenly they could get permission. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, talk to certain people and like, yeah, my wife is like, you're going to leave me alone with the kids for like a week and go to this conference? That's crazy. Yeah, um, you have all the fun. in Paris, they're like, so I called my mom. She's going to take care of the kids and we can go off to Paris. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's how it's done. And yeah. So Michael basically explained uh, some of the things. Maybe I have, maybe I have some. We could get his slides somewhere, maybe uh, in the future. So um, and then afterwards, um, since we hadn't had dinner yet, we, a couple of them went to a shawarma place. I went with Michael Lucas, and some of the newbies followed along because basically they were new to town anyway. So that was a good way of getting to know each other a bit better. Yes, uh, luckily, uh, once you get into the byword market, you just pick a place and go eat. It's fine, uh, yep. but you know. It's nice not to be alone in the strange city. So, mm. yeah. So that was the day before. The very first conference day is um, happening next. Um, that was traditionally opened by Dan Langell, showing the statistics that we mentioned last year. Uh, last year, <laughs> yeah, the statistics from last year that we mentioned last week. Uh, so that pretty much yes. said the same uh, number yeah. of attendees. B BSD Can twenty eighteen broke the record uh, for having the most people uh, doing. It was zero people bigger than last year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's not a decline. Uh, and I guess that's a good number of people to to handle. And I think this one had especially a lot more uh, new people here. Yes, I think the number of people that's that were there for the first impression. time was definitely higher. I, I know at the Dev Summit, uh, the number of people that were new or were invited uh, and weren't FreeBSD committers was very high, which is good. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and then um, Ben O'Rice gave the keynote uh, talking about the tragedy of SystemD, which was uh, a good mixture of uh, hilarity and also serious talk because, um, you know, a lot of people, when they hear SystemD, it's like, ha, 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 the, the tragedy or the, the disaster. But Ben also had a good point or a couple of good points um, looking at what SystemD is, what the ideas behind were, even though the implementation might be a bit different than what people were expecting um, but some of the intentions are are good and um, that's what he uh, focused it on and we shouldn't be too judgmental just by hearing all the, the crazy talk about system D that doesn't mean that we shouldn't that we will implement it anytime soon but at least we can get some ideas from that one and integrate it in our own kind of uh, system uh, yeah, and then here follows my uh, list of talks. So I was also um, in the automating network infrastructures with Ansible on FreeBSD afterwards. So that was in the Dev Summit track, and uh, that was a good talk because I, you know, I was also interested in the Ansible parts in that, uh, especially since I gave my tutorials uh, or the tutorial about Ansible two days before that, and I saw some people from the tutorial in that talk as well. So uh, I guess they did the same, like me did everything that's Ansible-like they want to know about, and that was certainly a good presentation. Uh, we also had a couple of, um, you know, questions from the audience and back and forth. So that was good. Uh, the next one was all along the D-Watch Tower. Uh, Devin Teske delivered a well-prepared talk, in my opinion. So at first I thought, oh, wow, 100 uh, slides. Uh, that's a lot, and that doesn't fit into a 19-minute, or is it not? No, 45 minutes even. 45-minute uh, time slot with questions. And I thought, ooh, that's tough. But the slides were pretty much just um, not filled with too much text, and that flowed quickly through the uh, material without, um, you know, 
quickly going through it um, and making people uh, confused. So that was a great one and also has a great demo at the end uh, that showed what uh, D-Trace in combination with um, her own D-Watch improvements uh, could do. And uh, the visualizations were pretty nice to see. And, um, of course, there were also questions. So it seems like D-Trace um, is a tool that D-Watch is making it much easier to use for people to get, just get into without having to learn the D-Trace um, specifics or the, the syntax. And then D-Watch can be used to um, you know, demonstrate certain things. And then you can use that once you're interested in that. Then you can use D-Trace to go into an even more deeper level and looking at the things that interest yeah, you. you know, a lot of times it's a matter of getting it in and showing what you can do and making it not too complicated that then eventually leads to you digging in and getting more. It's kind of like the conversation we're having on IRC right now is, mm. you know, FreeNAS gets lots of people using FreeBSD and ZFS, uh, but importantly, a, a portion of those people will eventually dig deeper and get into actually doing FreeBSD stuff uh, underneath. Yep. And then I grabbed food, uh, which caused well, actually, me to be a um, bit late. At the, during, while you were at the D-Watch talk, I yeah. was oh, in yeah, the right. other room uh, where Rod Grimes was talking about improvements to ZFS Send and Receive um, mm -hmm. by basically passing uh, a file descriptor to a socket opened by the ZFS command instead of... Um, you know, doing ZFS send pipe something else. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, um, so that was interesting. We had quite a bit of discussion about it. Um, there was some concern about having the ZFS receive command uh, open up a port and listen um, because invalid data sent in there could cause it to crash or something. So we talked about reversing it and making it so that the receiver connects to the sender um, so that if somebody randomly connects to the port or whatever uh, on the sender, all they're going to do is get blasted with a stream of ZFS. They're, because it's unidirectional, they won't be able to send something back that uh, will cause ZFS to, to crash or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that particular day had a full track ZFS only. So in that one room, there was ZFS from the morning till the evening. Uh, so that was cool. Uh, as I said, I grabbed food, which made me go to the ZFS buff a little bit late. So they were all already uh, into it when I uh, joined that one. Uh, that was led by Alan and Matt Ahrens. So um, I only caught a, a couple of last questions. Um, but overall, what were the questions about the, the usage um, or uh, features? We had a couple of questions. Um, uh, Matt started off with just a quick overview of all the things that have recently landed in ZFS, uh, what other stuff is coming pretty soon, what stuff is in the works, uh, and other ideas and that type of thing. Um, we answered a bunch of questions about uh, deduplication, um, in particular, streaming deduplication. So ah, if you don't have something. dedupe on your machine, you can ZFS send a stream and turn on deduping of the send stream. Yep. So it will create the dedupe table in user space rather than the kernel and um, basically keep track of every block as it replicates it. And if it ever encounters a block that it could dedupe, in the replication stream, it just says, hey, refer to this object I already sent you earlier. Mm -hmm. um, so on neither end, you end up with the dedupe tax of, of uh, impacting the performance of your system. But what you replicate across the wire does get deduped. 
ah, that could result into a much more space yeah, savings. So if you have a, well, it doesn't save any space, but you the, the overall transport. The network possibly. Yeah. Yeah. So if you have very dedupable data, um, and you're not using dedupe, you can still get the advantage over the network. Although remember, your ZFS send uh, command is going to take a lot of RAM to do that. Yeah, uh, of course. Yeah. But, uh, it's but definitely interesting. From, yeah, and, and looking at the questions that people asked, it seems like people are now using more advanced features in ZFS and not just ask, hey, how do I create a pool or, I don't know, right. <laughs> some easy things. Uh, so they're using ZFS uh, extensively, uh, yeah, at least I the people. Say, that, uh, there are a lot fewer questions about do I have to have a number of dr drives as a power of two uh, and more, yeah. you know, I'm replicating this way and how do I optimize it and so on. So mm. yes, I would say the, uh, the level of the questions has gotten a lot higher uh, at the ZFS boffs over the last couple of years that I've been doing them. Mm. Okay, so that catches on. And uh, my next talk was uh, SSH key management by Michael Lucas. Uh, it, it was an excerpt from his uh, SSH Mastery, the second edition, but um, this is a new part, a new chapter that he wrote for that one, uh, covering all kinds of, um, you know, how to do key management in a big uni university or a big company, how do you create your own uh, certificate authority uh, with SSH. So that was new to me, definitely, because I was reading the book, but I didn't get to that chapter yet. So, um, but that kind of whet my appetite for this uh, particular topic. And um, it was well presented of, uh, as well from Michael Lucas, as always. If you know how his presentations go, he's uh, also interacting a lot with the uh, audience and, you know, drop some names sometimes, you know, uh, Peter Wem was in there, had to leave out for the, the power outage issue for a while, but then came back. And, um, you know, that that was a good session. I hope it uh, will come out on YouTube soon when the recordings are available. So that's definitely worth watching. Uh, did you go to any of the talks in that time slot after lunch? or? Uh, actually, no. That's I, I got sidetracked in the hallway and didn't make it to a talk. Uh, yeah, that uh. happens. Yeah. I was torn between going to talks and staying at the foundation table for a while. But, yeah, um, yeah. it's it's difficult to be in all the places at once. Yeah, um, and I'd already seen Sam's talk and Brooks' talk at AGBSDCon and Taiwan uh, BSDCon uh, previously. So... Um, there was that. Uh, but yes, uh, I, I, there were two more talks I could have gone to yeah. uh, and would have been interested in, but I um, I didn't get very much time for my lunch during the boff. And uh, so yeah, after, yeah. I was uh, out in the hall talking to people and, and never actually made it anywhere. No, yeah, that, that's fine. Uh, yeah. Oh, after and, I, and I used the time to go and get the interview room we had booked and set it up. Yeah. Yeah, that leads into our next segment. So my part is the... Uh, so I didn't go to any talks after that one. Okay, I did. Uh, so I can talk a little bit about that. Um, I did uh, Warner Lush's uh, dev match talk, uh, which is talking about using uh, the PCI plug-and-play information so that we can take the generic kernel in FreeBSD and make it quite a bit smaller. Uh, he actually had some graphs showing how the kernel has grown over time. 
with the different versions and the different compilers. Um, and this would basically let us get the 12 kernel back towards the size of the 7 kernel, uh, which would be a big uh, shrink, um, by basically having more of the drivers not be on by default, but be as loadable modules, because devmatch would auto-load the correct modules. Yeah, and uh, on yeah. demand. The main reason, like right now, we compile almost every storage controller into the kernel because, you know, you need storage in order to boot. And, um, you know, if every user has to, you know, edit their loader.conf and, and add the driver for their storage controller, that's not very fun. But mm. if devmatch can automatically load the drivers for all the devices on your system, it means generic gets smaller. You only have the drivers for stuff you need loaded. Uh, it reduces attack surface and other things as well. But in general, uh, it'd be a big improvement. Uh, so we talked a bit about that, how some of the work went, how is Google Summer of Code student is doing on applying this to the hundreds of drivers that are built into the base, uh, and also some of the shortcomings this has when it comes to platforms like ARM that don't necessarily have a bus where you can just enumerate what additional devices are plugged in. Yep, uh, and all these add up to a much more uh, smaller kernel footprint in the actual memory because the kernel is always resident in memory and the smaller the kernel, the more memory you have. Yeah. Among other benefits. Um, and then after that, uh, we actually got pulled out of, uh, instead of going to the last talk, we kidnapped Kirk and locked him in a room uh, on the fourth <laughs> floor and uh, made him talk to us until we had to pack up and run to, to our core meeting. Yeah, so there were a couple of meetings around the conferences because they make use of the conference space and that the fact that people are actually in one place to talk. Yeah. Uh, it's it's the one time of year where all of us are in one place. Uh, it's the most <laughs> uh, well-attended conference in that regard. And so uh, you had foundation meeting, uh, FreeBSD journal meetings. Um, yep. We had the core team meeting. There were a bunch of other meetings. Yeah. And so these are uh, behind the scenes, more or less, um, but uh, nevertheless important for uh, getting some of the uh, things working that are either announced later or um, just keep up with um, what's what's new or what people are working on or yeah, coordinating you know, things. Get all the people in the room for an hour. You get a lot more done than you would over email or even uh, teleconference. Yep. That is... Uh, Having four or five people be active in the discussion at once uh, when we were talking about the SSL certificate thing, um, if we tried to do that on Google Hangout, it would have taken twice as long because we would have had to stop and try a lot harder not to talk over top of each other. Whereas in person, it was with the no latency and clearer audio, it was much easier to deal with. Yeah. Definitely, that's, that's a good way of... Um getting something done or at least coordinated so far that people can um, go ahead on their own. Yep. Uh, so we interviewed Kirk uh, in the video that we used uh, yesterday. If you happen to watch the FreeBSD Day live stream, you was probably have caught that, although it was only about one of the six hours of content in there, so maybe you didn't. Uh, I think we'll cheat and stick that in a BSD Now episode uh, coming up soon. I think mm -hmm. we have uh, one of those weeks where we have to record ahead soon, so we will. Uh, yeah, we'll have an interview for you with uh, <laughs> that great interview we did with Kirk. Um, but the FreeBSD Day live stream, I'm going to leave that up for at least a month or so. Um, 
but we'll talk more about that later in the show. Uh, on to day two of the conference. Yep. <laughs> so um, I basically spent most of the time in the room that had all the ZFS talks. Uh, the first one was, of course, uh, Matt Aaron's about flexible disk usage in OpenZFS, talking about the features uh, he's implementing to expand the RAID Z. Uh, with well, single it was disk. first the one that's already in, in 12 now, which is device removal, allowing you yep. to take uh, individual devices or mirror sets out of a pool to shrink a pool. But I don't know who would ever need less space. Yeah, it's <laughs> unlikely. There are a couple times where it's useful, uh, and it's an interesting feature. Um, yeah, and then the second half of that is the RAID Z expansion work where you'll be able to take, say, you know, an array of, of six disks in a RAID Z1 or Z2 and expand it to seven disks and get additional storage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was uh, interesting to see how they implemented that and, you know, moving the data around to uh, balance it again and things like that so that if you are evacuating a device that you know, you know, all the data is off that device if, I, if you pull it yeah. out of the pool. Yeah. And just yeah, the way certainly. that uh, the blocks get reflowed, kind of like just changing the width of uh, a column in a in a word editor, uh, a, a document editing software. Mm. You know, you're you're doing two columns or whatever, and you just widen one of the columns, and the whole paragraph shifts up as as uh. each sentence gets wider, and and you get your word wrap going on or whatever. Um, it's interesting to watch that happen on a hard drive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as a as a live thing. Yeah, yeah. So that went uh, that went well. It went a bit a bit longer. So you had to start uh, quickly your Z standard talk after that. Uh, actually, no, I had quite That's a bit some of time. time. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, your laptop break, and I had I stood around waiting for fifteen minutes. So. <laughs> well, your laptop was uh, um, tested with the HDMI connector, so uh, that was easy to get started. Yeah. I was running FreeBSD, so it just worked. All the people with Macs were having trouble. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, well, we take that bullet. And <laughs> so that talk was basically the same you gave at Asia BSDCon, or is that an extended um, talk? A bunch of things have changed since then. Uh, mm -hmm. But it was somewhat related, yes. It was a derivative of it, basically. Yeah, it's like so... Everything I said in Tokyo plus a bunch of new developments, including, I don't think I had run into the L2ARC problem yet in Tokyo, uh, and some of the other bits uh, came out of discussions that happened in April at the ZFS user conference. Uh, so obviously, that hadn't happened yet when I presented this in uh, Tokyo. Yeah, so that was the, the latest talk about the Z standard in open ZFS, which we're looking forward to, no pressure here. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it takes its time, and and I liked the, especially the the story that you had around it, where you said, "Oh, it was it wasn't just easy uh, to do; it had also some bumpy parts where you didn't find the information that you were looking for, or who can help me with that?" Or, yes, or I ran into a bug, but it turns out the bug was fixed like three hours after I downloaded it, but I didn't run into it for two days, and so uh, yeah. if I had just updated a bit later or updated again the next day, I would have never encountered this bug and I wouldn't have wasted two days trying to figure out what was broken. <laughs> yeah, that happens. Uh, but yeah, it, it's on a good uh, path towards uh, completion. Yeah, uh, I encountered something similar to that uh, last week. Spent like three days trying to figure out why uh, QMU wouldn't boot properly with UEFI 
Uh, and it turned out it was because I didn't give it enough memory. <laughs> I was like scraggling through the boot code trying to figure out what was wrong and turned out that was not the case. Yeah. Okay, but yeah, that went uh, over well. And that was then when the, that was the morning part and then the, the, the lunch sessions had also all kinds of uh, birds of a feather sessions. Mm-hmm. And then uh, in the afternoon, uh, I had a bunch of different talks. I went to uh, Calvin Hendricks Parker's talk about uh, replacing traditional backup systems with ZFS. Oh, yeah. I went to, to a late lunch outside, so I didn't get to that one. Right. Uh, uh-huh. I was a bit late to Calvin's talk as well. I snuck in from the back because uh, I was talking with Matt Ahrens uh, over our late lunch out in the hall. Yeah, the lunch uh, crowd was uh, had a long line and uh, people uh, tried to get food. Yeah, uh, I know for most of the boss, we waited about 15 minutes uh, to let people get through the lunch line and get to a boss. Yeah, if there's still a big line for lunch, let's not start yet and let people get their food and, and come sit down and then we'll talk. Yeah. Uh, and then later in the day, uh, we had, uh, there was preparing your home router for the future, running Linux apps on FreeBSD, uh, RDMA over converged Ethernet, and ZRevel. Oh, yeah, I went to that one because uh, I was sharing the room at the university with Christian, and we flew over to Canada. It was his first time, so I showed him around a bit, so I, I had to be there. Um I was there because Matt Aarons and I were both interested in a bunch of the work he's doing. Um, ZRepl itself is of some interest, but more uh, some of the changes to ZFS that, uh, you know, back in 2015, at the, when I was trying to update my ZFS replication tool, I decided that as a hackathon project, it'd be good to build a subcommand into ZFS that told you about the changes to the ZFS command. Kind of like how we have feature flags for the on-disk format uh, and feature flags for the send-receive format. We need something like that for the command line. Uh, you know, As the command line's matured, it grew, say, the option to set more than one uh, property at once. Well, if your script, you know, there, there's performance improvement in doing multiple properties in one go instead of each one separately. But your script has to know whether your version of ZFS supports that or not before it tries to do it. Yeah. Right. Uh, or even just figuring out, hey, is the machine on the other side even support that property? And, you know, depending on what version you have, uh, ZFS send um, that uh, the verbose no op version prints it to standard out instead of standard error or the other way around. Um, mm-hmm. And again, if you're going to capture that data in order to. Um, create a progress bar, you have to know which, which file descriptor to read it from. And yeah, so, otherwise again, it's not yeah. progressing. <laughs> uh, so in the latter half of his talk, uh, and also discussions uh, we had uh, over um, other times with me and Matt Aarons and Sarah Harsey and uh, Christian were, uh, how do we build that? And, and so on. And so that mm-hmm. was why I was in that talk, because I was very interested in talking about some of the other things he wants to do. Uh, and how, especially if he can take my old project from 2015 and finish it, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, so that's going, and he, uh, he's talking about, I, I talked to him afterwards, and uh, he's planning to go to the ZFS Developer Summit. So that's yes. uh, good development um, there. Although apparently his his exams are spread out across that period. And uh, 
he doesn't want to fly home and do the exam with jet lag. And I'm like, yeah, that's eh, understandable. We'll do it this way. And then he's like, well, I don't want to go to San Francisco just for a couple of days and then come back. I want to stay and do touristy stuff. I'm like, well, just come back in October for me, BSD, and do the touristy <laughs> stuff then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there will be um, there will be a couple of options. Uh, yeah. So it's difficult as a student, but there will be um, yes, ways to uh, But yeah. hopefully, uh, we will see him at the ZFS Developer Summit. Mm hmm. Yeah, that will and be. Maybe he'll even good. have done some work by then. <laughs> yeah, so I don't have to. Get even the more, more work he does, to... the less I have to do, which is very helpful. Or more, <laughs> the faster it gets done, which is is more important. It's, you know, mm. it's not that I don't want to do work. It's just that that work is rather far down my to do list, and I'd rather it get done sooner. Yeah, if someone else is already working in that area, that uh, makes sense to hand that over. Um, yeah, and after that one, I stayed in that room because then Kirk McCusey gave his evolution of FreeBSD governance talk. Yes, and I had a good seat and wanted to keep it for the auction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that people can see you when you raise your hand. Um, but that was a good talk. If you know, if you've ever heard Kirk speak, that's just that's just great. I mean, the, uh, and the topic he also, itself uh, passed around a pamphlet from the University of. Uh, California at Berkeley uh, was like the six greatest inventions ever come out of uh, Berkeley and I think was it number four was hey this BSDOS thing yeah so they recognized that and uh, among other uh, achievements that was that was listed and then it, it went into uh, detailing how uh, some of the early days started off like how do we manage this project who's in charge and how do we deal with conflicts that might flare yes, up at and some point? How we evolve that over time and make sure that you know it's more than one person in charge and that we can successfully change the group of people that's in charge. And as he noted, um, well, we have the core election every two years and that slowly shifts who's in charge. There have been basically in different eras of BSD. Right? Mm. You know, you had kind of like the the early era of you know, Jordan and PHK and, and Rod Grimes and so on. And then you had the later era with, you know, Watson and so on. And then now you have the, the current era and then soon we'll have yet another era. Yeah. The, the, yeah, the voting period is over. The results aren't there yet, but uh, we'll keep that uh, for the future episodes for you. Um. so, yeah, that was good to, you know, and he also, um, iterated on that this is an ongoing process and the community needs fresh blood infused otherwise we just grow old and you know die out as like the dinosaurs yeah, and, and so he had his graph of uh committer ages uh, yep because uh, it's interesting we should get uh, christian a commit bit and he can drag that slightly lower <laughs> <laughs> yeah so the medium age of the freebsd developer community doesn't uh move to being older the more people we get in there the the more likely it is that we shift this or keep this at a certain age yes uh, i guess so far we've actually uh, managed to keep the average under 40 uh, mm -hmm. and that's pretty good yeah i'm i'm still within that uh, <laughs> age yeah. group uh, and uh, you know kirk <laughs> said if, if you drop the five oldest people then the average shifts down to like 37 <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> even better statistics. Yep. <laughs> okay, that was fun. And uh, then the closing session already started. Oh, the conference is over so quickly. But closing session means auction. 
And uh, that was also a funny thing because people had all kinds of funny things to auction off. Uh, well, it, what's funny is that the epicness of this auction has spread outside of just BSD can now. So the catering people heard about this. Uh, so a couple of years ago, um, after, well, they were cleaning up, Dan managed to rescue the last cookie uh, from the tea time at like two o'clock. And so at five o'clock, he auctioned off the last cookie. Uh, and it was like a chocolate chip. Isn't it? And I, don't know, I think somebody paid like $30 for it because uh, the money goes to charity. Um, but then Dan, being Dan, uh, produced the second to last cookie and proceeded to auction <laughs> it off. Uh, and that was pretty amusing. Um, but if it somehow, uh, and that's continued a couple last couple of years now, uh, and now somehow the catering people heard about this. And so uh, one of the nice ladies made a special last cookie of BSD can. <laughs> it was about this big. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Not your typical cookie size. It was size. like the entire size of the tray that it goes in. Um, and so Dan explained, the, told a little story about it and held up this cookie. And I was like, bid, bid. Well, I want that. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I paid $60 for the cookie. It was really good. The last cookie. It took cookie, me a yeah. week to eat the whole cookie, but it was good. <laughs> it stayed remarkably fresh as well. The container they put it in was very nice. <laughs> but and it, then, it fueled uh, the ride home all day on the following Sunday, and uh, I just kind of took chunks out of it. <laughs> yeah, that's a snack for, for a the week. road. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, they had the second to last cookie again. Yes. Same size. And that <laughs> also went to the auction. <laughs> but it wasn't the last cookie. I got the last cookie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Second to last and last. <laughs> uh, oh, yes. And then uh, Henning was a good sport again. Um, so Michael Lucas uh, donated a t-shirt in a shiny bag. Um, and eventually we managed to uh, get the bidding high enough to get Henning to wear this shirt without getting to look at it first. Uh, actually, I think a bunch of people pooled their bids together in order to make uh, the biggest possible bid, which I think they, in, in total, they bid over a, a total of over 700 and something dollars. Uh, yeah. But anyway, uh, so then there's Henning walking around for the rest of the night with his I Love System D t-shirt on. Uh, and yep. people could donate an additional $10, I think it was, to uh, get their picture taken. Uh, with a cat on Hightails? And the shirt. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is certainly a fun uh, way of ending the conference and uh, having a good laugh for for a good cause. Yep. And yeah, uh, we want to thank uh, everyone that made BSD Can happen, especially Dan Langell, organizing this year after year, getting better each time. This is what and yeah, fifteenth year. Yeah, uh, it's just amazing to see how yeah. how it's done and everything works. Everything is there. Catering works. Uh, talks are there. And, yeah well it's just yeah. like thinking of we're getting i'm getting close to my fifth year of bsd now and if you count the other podcasts i did like five years before that but uh dan's been doing the conference for 15 years that's mm -hmm. a long time and not just that as also pgcon before or after that if, if yeah. you're already tired after organizing one conference you think twice of doing another one the next yeah, it, week it's, it's slightly interesting he seems to flip-flop back and forth between the idea of do them 
in consecutive weeks and get it over with or take a month off in between. <laughs> yeah. So uh, BSD Cam <laughs> will be back in May next year, but PGCon I don't think is going to move, and so there will be a bunch of time between them. Um, yes. Instead so, of them being back-to-back like they were this yeah. year. Definitely, yeah. So don't plan anything for May in 2019 because that's BSD Cam. And but the official dates... Uh, were tweeted many times with pictures and so on. Uh, so you don't have to take the whole month off. It's, it's You just need <laughs> six or so days. Yeah, so we should hopefully meet you there next year. Yeah. Wow, that took even longer than I Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> as much time uh, as... This it, week's it extremely long episode of BSD Now is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Head over to digitalocean.com uh, and check it out. If you've yeah. never used DigitalOcean before, uh, go to do.co slash bsdnow and uh, you'll end up at a super secret URL that lets you sign up and get a $100 credit for two months. Uh, and you can try as many droplets as you want during that time. Uh, or if you already have an account but haven't used a coupon code before, uh, go into your account and add the coupon code FreeBSD now, and an extra ten dollars will be added to your account, uh, and that one doesn't expire. You get to use that ten dollars over however long you need. Uh, and since you can get a one gigabyte of RAM, one CPU VM with a terabyte of transfer for only five dollars a month, um, it might take you two months to use up that ten dollar credit. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and all these machines useful. come with uh, free monitoring attached to it. You don't have to pay for that. So you can say, oh, what's my current CPU usage or how much bandwidth am I currently using? And you can set up alerts in case your VM is just chugging along nicely for months and you want to say, mm, in case something uh, spikes in the uh, CPU usage or in the traffic or some other metric, then I want to get alerted. And you can set up alerts uh, on the DigitalOcean website in your management interface, and that will alert you if something is out of the ordinary. Yeah, uh, and they also have load balancing, so you can load balance across multiple of these VMs so that you can, say, have one running 24-7 and the other one only uh, spool up on an hourly price uh, when your website gets busy uh, or whatever, and they have floating IPs. So if instead of doing in-place upgrades, you like to do green-blue where you set up the new one, get it working, flip the traffic over, and only once it's confirmed, uh, get rid of the old version, you can do that as well. Plus, with private networking, you can have a separate uh, database instance with multiple front ends, and uh, all that traffic is on a private network and also doesn't count against your uh, beefy quota you already get. And with their new $15 a month size droplet, you can choose between 1, 2, and 3 gigs of RAM, uh, 1, 2, and 3 CPUs, uh, and pick the right balance for you. Do you want lots of RAM and not a lot of CPU, a little bit of both, or not as much RAM but lots of CPUs? Yep. It also provides you with integrations into your automation software like Chef, Ansible, Puppet. There are modules there to just exactly. spin up uh, VMs. It has the, the client data support, so you just feed it the little script. Uh, you know, you can pick FreeBSD 11.1 and 11.2 will be available very soon. Uh, you can choose it with UFS or ZFS, and you can just feed it a little script, and it will start running commands during first boot. It will apply your Puppet manifest or your Ansible playbook or whatever, uh, and you know 
the VM comes up in under a minute and then it'll apply your changes and you'll have a perfectly customized FreeBSD machine up in literally no time. Yep. And that's the beauty of it. You have all these kinds of integrations and you can uh, integrate it into your, like you can get Slack notifications, for example, in case you are using that and want to get notified about certain states. And they have a great community, so you can uh, find a couple of tutorials that you always wanted to try out on your DigitalOcean machine. And in case you tried it and you say, nah, it's okay, I tried it, but it's not my thing, then you just delete the VM and it doesn't uh, cost you any more money. Yeah, the, the $5 a month one is 0 0.7 cents per hour. You, and it's already you can, a good You can run that machine. for a while and it's not going to add up to any money. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> so yeah, try them out and use those coupon codes that Alan mentioned so that you can uh, start off on our little uh, bill here unless you like it and then add your credit card if you want to keep this running. So next up, we have a story about Nomad BSD 1.1. Yeah, they seem to be uh, starting their... Um, they're in their uh, release candidate one period in the development at this point. Mm -hmm. So, But they also list a couple of things that are new. Uh, the first and hopefully final release candidate of Nomad BSD. This is Nomad BSD 1.1, and that can be now downloaded from their website. And they have a couple of changes listed there already, which are interesting for people. Uh, yeah. So if you don't know what Nomad BSD is, it's basically a, a live BSD system on a USB stick. So it allows you to basically have a little uh, BSD desktop you can carry around in your pocket and plug into any uh, computer, boot it up, and and have your BSD desktop and, and use it that way. Yeah, if you're laptop shopping, for example, you want to see whether everything is supported, whether sound is uh, working or stuff, bring that to your vendor and ask them, hey, can I test my little system here? I just yeah. boot this from the USB stick. Yeah, and it's got uh, bundled-in support for the Intel GPU stuff. Basically, it uh, auto-installs the DRM next to KMOD uh, uh, package. Uh, has support for a nice package manager. Uh, they have DSB display settings, the exec and sue. It has uh, Thunderbird, Mosh, Nmap, DD Rescue, uh, and a bunch of Xterm, all that kind of stuff bundled by default. So you have a nice usable machine right out of the box. Yeah, well, very cool. That sounds like a good refresh for a new version. Bunch of new software available. So time for news roundup. This week we have an LDAP client added to current, that's OpenBSD current. And so uh, Rick Floiter uh, committed his simple LDAP client uh, to the OpenBSD-based system. Yep. If you think, well, isn't that already overdue? Yes, OpenBSD had for a while already the, the server and the YP LDAP in base. So it makes sense to have a simple LDAP client without depending on the open LDAP package from uh, ports. So that's good to have in the base system. And in and particular, it means you can use it with the authorized keys command script. Uh, so basically, when you SSH to uh, the server, you can have it to use the LDAP client to talk to the LDAP server and be like, hey, give me all the authorized keys out of the database for this user. 
and it will. Yep. And then it can authenticate users against those. So this way you can have one central LDAP server that has everybody's SSH keys and they can log into any of the machines they're allowed to, all controlled by LDAP. And uh, it's OpenBSD, so of course there's a full man page that describes how to use it. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's nice. That's a good uh, whole package for, for LDAP folks. Mm-hmm. Especially with the SSH integration, that's uh, that's nice to have. Because a couple of uh, big companies, um, I, I, I saw that in the in the talk in SSH um, uh, certificate authority, you can basically, you know, load up your key into your LDAP profile, and there you can pull it down again when authorizing against. Uh, of course, if your LDAP server is down and you have a much bigger problem, um, because then you cannot log in again. But in general, for big installations and uh, big companies, that's that's a good solution to have. So yeah, great to see that in OpenBSD. And another story that we have this week is the uh, infamous Intel FPU speculation vulnerability uh, has been confirmed now. So people have been rumoring about this, but um, it's official now. There is another CPU bug, at least right. uh, in so, FPU uh, this time. In OpenBSD, uh, Philip uh, Gantier had committed uh, a change to uh, do proactive rather than uh, lazy uh, FPU switching. He committed that July 5th. Um, then later, during the second day of BSD CAN, uh, or the second day of talks at BSD CAN, Theodorat uh, had a discussion about it. Um, and then, using information disclosed uh, in Theo's talk, uh, Colin Percival from FreeBSD developed a proof of concept uh, proof of concept exploit in about five hours after lunch there. Uh, so I'm guessing Colin didn't <laughs> see any more talks for the rest of the day. He just yeah, didn't have much lunch writing. Um, <laughs> And he sent that off to Intel, uh, and that the fact that there was now a, a usable exploit. Um, there's um, that caused Intel to uh, make the official announcement about the vulnerability early. Yeah, because there was already exploit code yeah. going up. So, so remember, on folks. the thirteenth, uh, instead of I think the plan was the end of the month. I don't actually know. Um, Intel released the details of the vulnerability. Uh, I, we also have a link here to Colin's uh, tweet stream about it, where he talked about how he uh, wrote the exploit and and how he told Intel about it and so on. Um, and then you can see there's also uh, FreeBSD's commit uh, to mitigate the same vulnerability. What's interesting is the FreeBSD commit also includes a link to the FreeBSD mailing list from March of 2015, uh, so more than three years ago, where there was actually a suggestion of making that same change for performance reasons. And it's interesting, a couple of other uh, smaller OSs, like I think, um, I'm trying to remember the name of it now. Anyway, uh, a couple of other small uh, OSs have actually um, didn't have this vulnerability because they've been doing it the the other way because it's faster anyway. Uh, and uh, it's interesting that uh, had people spent a little bit more time on it, uh, this might have been fixed in FreeBSD in 2015. Mm. Yeah, uh, from, if, coming from if, a different if, angle. 
Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's always uh, a risk of making a change like this that it's actually, well, it's faster on these machines, it's not faster on those machines, and so on. Um, and, or, you know, they might introduce a subtle bug that'll be really hard to figure out. Um, and so sometimes these changes are not made without a, a really good reason. And then Intel went and gave us a really good reason. <laughs> to actually pay more attention to that particular part of the uh, implementation. Yeah, so this is security, this is serious, and if there are patches available for your system, then you should apply them uh, sooner rather than later. Yep. This week's episode of BSD Now is brought to you by IX Systems. Head over to ixsystems.com slash bsdnow and check out their new uh, ebook. Oh yeah! How open source storage is disrupting the enterprise market, and it talks about how proprietary and cloud storage fall short of what you can do with ZFS, uh, and why open source storage is a better development model for all storage systems. Plus, you know the compatibility of the fact that hey, if you make a ZFS pool, you can import it on FreeBSD or Illumos or Mac or Linux, uh, and it just works. You're not locked into any provider or even any operating system uh, and how the IX system solutions take advantage of NVMe and NVDIMMs to give you very cutting edge performance uh, and why businesses need unified data platforms because you know it's much easier to protect and back up your data if it's all in one place uh, and you know it's much easier to deal with the data if it's on ZFS <laughs> yeah you get for sure all this administrative awesomeness uh, and the data protection from ZFS and uh, checksums and so on. Yeah, because these anyway. storage systems are basically used to house all your important data and you might as well yeah. choose a good solution for that. Do, do you really want to be locked, in, uh, locked into one particular vendor or would you like to have something that's open source and well supported and available from your selection of operating systems and hardware vendors and software support vendors and so on. Yeah, because these are your backup systems. These are your day-to-day -day storage systems that should not fail or mm -hmm. should have at least a way to, you know, give you tools and uh, utilities to make it uh, repair themselves or poke at it if the need is uh, there. But they should be running um, reliably and IX systems can build you such a system. Just call them up and tell them what kind of open source solution you're looking for or what kind of problems you're trying to solve with that server. And they will tell you the uh, hardware combinations that they would recommend for you in case of, um, you know, if you want a certain number of CPUs or a certain performance in the IO, or if you just want um, as many disks as possible in the system, they can build you uh, these custom systems for your purpose, not just off the, off the shelf. Right. And because you know, it, it'll be running ZFS, you're not stuck no matter what happens, uh, whether it be to FreeBSD or IX systems or whatever, not that anything's going to happen to either of those, but mm -hmm. you're not stuck. You can take that data and keep going forever. And, you know, ZFS, it's the last file system you're ever going to need. <laughs> yes, and they also support uh, conferences like BSDCAN that we mm -hmm. uh, just attended two weeks ago. And they have their own version on their blog about how they were uh, seeing the conference because they were with a record number of people there, I think 20 people in total. They also had a table there showing their um, new 
M-series system. And they talked to people, of course, and sponsored the conference. So that was uh, that was great. And their recap is listed on their uh, company's blog, ixsystems.com slash blog, where you can get their impressions about the conference. And uh, it's, it's nice to see uh, that they had uh, similar experiences that we got. Yep. So yeah, so, uh, check out story. iXSystems. Yeah, well, wrong. <laughs> yeah, yes. next story is interesting. com slash BSD now. <laughs> yeah, excellent. <laughs> because our next story ties also into the storage space. Uh, we covered this a couple of, I think, a year ago or so. Uh, well, we, we, we covered about... the call for testing, but now it's actually merged in and will be part of FreeBSD 12.0 when it comes out in the next couple of months. Yes, we're talking about the PNFS support in FreeBSD. So that's Parallel Network File System implemented by Rick Macklem. So here's the commit message. Uh, there were a couple of follow-up commits with more uh, smaller fixes, but this is basically what it's all about. So that was been developed in a, a, a you know development branch and then was now merged into the official FreeBSD tree. So uh, most people know about NFS, which is the network file system, you have a server, you have a client that accesses the storage on the server, and this one gives you the possibility to have um, a parallel setup so that people can get from their, their storage from multiple servers, and they synchronize right. that. So uh, the general idea here is that you can have your load spread across multiple different NFS servers. So yeah, yeah this um, basically it's what's known as NFS v4.1 or PNFS, uh, and this code adds uh, the server for it to FreeBSD. Although it is a large commit, it should not affect the behavior of any non-PNFS uh, NFS server. Um, there's a bunch of documentation. Uh, How to set there. that up? Uh, and uh, there'll be better documentation soon. This is a merge of all the kernel code. The use land and man page uh, are. Uh, they say coming soon, but it's been like eight days, so I think those are actually in now. Uh, but a brief overview of how it works. Uh, a PNFS server separates the read-write operations from everything else that happens in NFS. Um, so all the metadata operations, like creating a new file, updating the modified time on a file, and so on, those happen uh, on the metadata server. Uh, and then this allows a PNFS service to be configured um, to what exceeds the limits of a single NFS server. So basically, by having one metadata server, where all the information about the files is, and then multiple mirrored data servers, uh, when you go to read a file, you can say, read a one megabyte chunk from the first server and on the next one megabyte chunk from the second server and pull twice as much over the network, especially if you have uh, link aggregation um, where you have oh, multiple yeah. network cards grouped together suddenly you can actually use the extra bandwidth because you're coming from two different MAC addresses. And that's significant, yeah, especially yeah, as so your NFS server grows and the number of users. Well, in particular, if you think, hey, I'm having this virtualization box with Beehive or Zen or whatever, um, and I'm going to host all my VM images on the NFS server. Well, if that data is spread across four or more uh, NFS servers, now you can pull that data off much more quickly and more in parallel. And even if one of them goes down, you can still read all the data from all the VMs. Yep, it's like your NFS RAID in a certain way. Kind of. um, <laughs> yeah, so 
Uh, NFS servers consist of a single metadata server and some number of data servers, all of which uh, are recent FreeBSD systems. Clients will mount uh, by negotiating with the metadata server, uh, just like with a regular single NFS server in the past. When a file is created, the metadata server creates a file tree identical uh, to what you would get on a normal NFS server on the da metadata server, except all of the regular files uh, will actually be empty. Uh, as such, if you look at the exported tree of the MDS directly, uh, you'll see that it's just a bunch of zero byte files. Uh, each of these files will have two extended attributes in the system attribute namespace. Uh, DS file, this uh, extended attribute stores information about uh, or information that the metadata server needs to find the data files and the attributes, which contains things like size, access time, etc. cetera. Uh, and so, when you want to read the file, the metadata server basically tells you these blocks are over there and those blocks are over here and go get it. Uh, yeah, very cool. And it explains in more detail how that actually works. Uh, and then it talks a bit about the different configuration options you have. Um, and it says the critical bit of information returned by the FreeBSD MDS server is the IP address of each of the data servers. Uh, and that's how you get the flexible file layout uh, that NFSv 4.1 is used uh, and tightly coupled. So in the layout, this is uh, also lets you have a file that says for each file uh, is basically for the server to know which parts of the file are on which data server. Mm -hmm. And it talks a bit more about it. So if you're interested in that or need basically high availability for your NFS, uh, it's worth checking out. Yeah, give it a test drive and uh, yeah, report anything that you see, and or if you if you like it, then give it a thank you because that's a huge amount of work uh, to implement. So next we have uh, a very interesting one. Have you ever wondered why all of the uh, the names of the tools in Unix are really strange? <laughs> yeah, we cannot comprehend. Where did, where did they come up with some of these names? Like, why is Awk <laughs> called Awk? Well, actually, Awk is named for the three people who invented it. Al Ejo, uh, Peter Weinberger, and Brian Kernigan. So there are three. The first letter of each of their last names is A-W-K. Mm -hmm. uh, it's hard to say <laughs> why it didn't end up getting called Aqua. <laughs> or yeah, something. yeah, something like Awk that. Awk is the one that actually was pronounceable, I guess, so maybe they picked that. Um, or something, yeah. yeah. <laughs> grep uh, actually comes from what the the command in ed, the text editor, which you can buy a book about if you head over to uh, Michael Lucas's website. Uh, but they backronymed it to mean global regular expression print. Uh, but is basically what it meant in, in ed was, I want to search the whole file for this regular expression and I want to print the result. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so G slash, and then your regular expression slash P would give you the results. Um, and then the, fgrep uh, is just fixed grep. It allows you to search for a fixed string, which is faster than evaluating the other stuff. And then you have extended grep and so on. Cat actually uh, is short for concatenate, uh, which just means to, you know, stick on the end of the last thing kind of thing. Uh, and there's that. But then uh, GCOS, G-E-C-O-S, is the name of the field in the password file that normally contains the user's real name. But that's actually the General Electronic Comprehensive Operating Supervisor, which is a little 
special. There's a history there, I guess. <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that was the name of the, the Honeywell computer that came up with the idea of that field. And it actually has a specific format so you can put like your office number and phone number, which made sense if you were at a university, which is where most of the Unixes were used originally. Mm. Well, that would make sense. Nowadays, less so, but it's still there from the historic uh, origins there. And then we had Roth, the typesetting application, and then we ended up with NROF, which is new Roth, and TROF, which is the typesetter for new Roth. <laughs> yeah, to make it even more confusing. Uh, but there's an easy one. There's T, T-E-E, which means the actual T, because if you have a pipe, then you can, you know, plug into yeah. that one and get the information from that pipe. Well, yes, and half of the flow will go straight across and half will be diverted. That's, you know, normal. Uh, and then BSS, that's the uh, certain part of an executable file, and that's the block started by symbol. Mm-hmm. Okay. And there's a, a longer explanation for what that means. Um, what does RC stand for? Right? We have, you know, you have bash RC, SHRC, etc. RC.conf. Uh, you know, everything has an RC file. And it stands for Runcom, uh, which mm -hmm. back in the old MIT CTSS era of 1965, that was how you did things, <laughs> which was basically short for run commands. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And people also made up their own uh, acronyms over time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> for example, the next one Perl. <laughs> Uh, was the practical extraction and reporting language, or as told by some people, the pathologically eclectic rubbish <laughs> lister. <laughs> yep, I guess that's one of the nicer ones. Um, <laughs> yeah, but Perl is there and has been around for a while as well, so uh, people probably don't know what this means. Yeah, uh, if you happen to know some other interesting ones, uh, you could write into feedback at bsdnow.tv and let us know. Or if you have some, if, if, if there's some tool you use frequently and are wondering what's the story with that, maybe we can answer that. Mm -hmm. In a future episode. So, time for the Beastie Bits this week, starting off with the RetroBSD Unix for Microprocessors project. So, this is over at retrobsd.org. And yep. that so explains retro what BSD this project is. is basically a port of BSD, not FreeBSD, BSD 2.11, which is the last version for the VAX, if I remember correctly. Um, that's basically been ported forward for modern use. Uh, specifically targeting things like the microchip PIC32. Uh, it can run with as little as 128 kilobytes of memory um, and I think supports up to, or in fits in 512 kilobytes of flash. Uh, that's been, yeah. Uh, yeah. If you have so a if you, pipe if you space, need then... to, <laughs> you know, control some piece of hardware and, you know, have a computer that's this big, uh, it's... Uh, very interesting. Uh, and, you know, if you want to just see what it was like to run BSD in the 80s, then you can jump all over this. That's your retro moment right there. <laughs> yeah. But I yeah, mean, it's good um, to pick up that code base. And, there's you know, also Lite BSD, L-I-T-E BSD, which is the forward evolution of 4.4 .4 BSD Lite um, um, for similar hardware. 
Mm-hmm. It's a, a little bit more modern in that it supports like paging. <laughs> okay, yeah, it comes in handy. I hear good things about it, and <laughs> but again, if you have a very tight address space and like embedded systems, then um, you probably don't need that much. So that might be a good use for RetroBSD. Okay, uh, next up, uh, there was a big uh, discussion more or less about uh, OpenBSD, whether or not they break embargoes in the in this particular case, the, the crack vulnerability a couple of, uh, was it last year or a couple of? I oh, think it was ago? early or late last year, yeah. Um, and so this was one of the vulnerabilities where uh, OpenBSD got advanced notification and worked up the patch, but held off committing it. Um, and there was a, a coordinated deadline, uh, but then at the last minute, the deadline got pushed back, uh, but OpenBSD got permission to commit it anyway, um, and people assumed that that was OpenBSD breaking the embargo, but actually they have the entire email thread here if you're interested in uh, seeing the actual details of what happened. And uh, OpenBSD... Uh, is is making the case that they didn't actually break the embargo, and I think the emails back that up. Mm, yeah, with the timestamps there, you can yeah. find how everything uh, evolved. Uh, okay, just more to... interestingly, we have an archive of Theo's old homepage from 1998, <laughs> uh, describing all of the computers that are in his basement. This is a copy of this from 1998. We need a new copy of this. Theo needs to do an inventory and let us know what's in his basement now. Yeah. Uh, but back in 1998, uh, he had some very interesting hardware, like a Sun SS2 with 28 megabytes of RAM and a 3.5 gigabyte hard drive and two monitors running SunOS. Um, okay. What at the time was called a Pentium 5, but actually was... Yeah. I had one uh, of those, 135. Yeah, that's the, yeah, the bus... It was a, yeah. basically a Pentium 1, uh, 133 megahertz with 64 megabytes of RAM and PCI and a 17 gigabyte uh, disk via an Adaptec 2940 SCSI controller. Oh, those were the days. <laughs> and he had a 120 <laughs> uh, megahertz version with only 32 megs of RAM and two gigabytes of disk via similar controller. Uh, a 486, uh, 66 megahertz uh, sounds very similar to the one I had. Uh, although mine had the Adaptec uh, SCSI controller. <laughs> mm. With terminators uh, and proper cables and all that. Yeah, uh, <laughs> A NEC Versa 2000 laptop with 16 megabytes of RAM and 500 megabytes of disk. A Sun 4 slash 400. Uh, a bunch of spare parts. Uh, <laughs> 150 megahertz, 166 megahertz. An AMD Net 29K. Wow. Yeah, some That's Motorola's a collection at here. 25 and 16 megahertz. And a deck at 166 megahertz. Wow. Cool. Interesting old ba stuff. Way back when, yeah, for the for people who want to delve into history and uh, relive those days. That's a good a way of uh, sparking that. Okay, um, another story that we found is that Airport Extreme runs NetBSD. So this is over at Joshua Stein's blog. Uh, 
writing, seven years ago, I hacked together some code to update my Ecobee Wi-Fi thermostat temperature, depending on whether I was home. Uh, while I never Ecobee, while my newer Ecobee thermostat was room occupancy sensors, they make this tracking automatic. Back then, I had to pull my Wi-Fi access point through SNMP to look for my phone's MAC address in its table of associated clients. That and is like the cleverest way to tell if you're home or not I have heard of. I never would have thought of that. Just yeah, talk to your, your wireless and be like, is my phone's MAC address, do, do I have a DHCP lease from my phone right now? It, am I in the vicinity? If, yeah. if my phone is not home, then the air conditioning doesn't need to be on. <laughs> Unless I forgot my, my phone and just boiled it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. So um, apparently, Apple has removed the SNMP support from its AirPod Extreme firmware some time ago, and since the macOS AirPod utility is able to show the list of connected clients on each access point, uh, they figured there must be a way to easily get that some inf same information through something other than SNMP. And it talks about how to grab that information. And, oh, suddenly there is a familiar copyright statement and a NetBSD booting prompt. And you can see. Uh, yeah, this it is looks like uh, it is actually NetBSD 6.0. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can get the... Compiled uh, six. November 2017. That seems late for uh, 6.0. So we're getting yeah. NetBSD 9.0 right now, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there weren't many updates on uh, in that uh, section uh, of Apple's hardware, if only that. <clears throat> and right, um, it's just the the compile date seems relatively new. Yeah, maybe that was the last update they did or something. But um, yeah, yeah. It, it's definitely running NetBSD in that regard yep. from the from the D message output. Okay, good to know in case you want to do some hacking on your uh, airport extremes. Mm -hmm. and, oh, yeah, That's and cool. our last item is what Unix shell could have been. So this talks about that the shell or the bash or whatever you have is an excellent tool that saves people a huge amount of work. Being able to easily script complex jobs together is one of the best things. It does... Uh, have some weaknesses, though, that I feel should be improved, though, and that um, basically talks about some of the advantages and drawbacks in that and uh, what the current mess is in that. And, yeah, that's a, a, a nice article to see uh, what's in, what could be done in this area. The, the shell space, basically. So this is pretty much what we have as Beastie Bits for this week. And uh, people have been uh, always uh, looking forward to the feedback and questions section. But uh, as always, before we go into that one, we should mention our sponsor for that section, which is tarsnap.com, who will give you the online backups for truly paranoid people. You might think, hmm, I should back up a couple of files before my laptop dies or if something horrible happens, I lose my hard disk or whatever. That's a good way to look at Tarsnap because yeah. Tarsnap, yeah, it was built specifically because Colin wanted to back up his laptop while he was away at a conference, knowing that the Wi-Fi at the conference wasn't going to support syncing a lot of data. So he built uh, an algorithm that would deduplicate, uh, segment all of his files into little chunks, 
uh, deduplicate those and find the smallest possible differences, then compress those anyway, since a lot of what he was going to be doing was probably source code and so on, it would compress well, and then encrypt and sign it and send it up because, you know, it's going over the university's Wi-Fi, uh, which the guest Wi-Fi at Uottawa uh, doesn't even have a password or anything, so it's probably not very encrypted. Mm. Yeah, so he created that service and let other people uh, now use it for for a number of years now. So uh, and then people find out, well, how much does it cost and how much do I have to pay each month? And there's a way to calculate that cost before signing up uh, because the Tarsnap utility is basically free to download and it can do a dry run on your data, like um, a certain directory, and then it will spit out um, the number of unique data that it will uh, be able to find after um, compressing it and deduplicating it, and that is the amount uh, that you have to pay. So this is, uh, for example, they have this in their uh, FAQ. There's uh, uh, after deduplication and compression, there's 1.7 gigabytes available, and that multiplied by 25 cents. That lets you pay only 0.43 cents per month for that data. Yeah, like I back up a directory full of all my business data. So there's spreadsheets and documents and contracts and mostly all very compressible stuff. Um, and it, it adds up to about a gig. So for the last, uh, and it's grown a little bit over there, but over the last, three years i've basically been paying about 25 cents a month i think i'm up to 28 cents a month now because i have a bit more data than before <laughs> yeah that's even less than the price of a soda so you might as well yeah. spend a bit of money in having a good reliable backup that's encrypted I, I, into... I spend the price of a soda a year <laughs> <laughs> yeah that should be worth the trouble for setting this up and it's quite easy to use if you know tarsnap then uh, or tar, tar in particular then Tarsnap is easy to use. They have uh, good documentation online with uh, examples, and it's a thing of like five or ten minutes to set it all up. Yep. And yeah, basically Just very nice and easy to get started doing backups. Spend a couple minutes basis. making sure you protect the key. Uh, you don't want anybody else to get the key, that's for sure. But also, because you know that would defeat the security of Tarsnap, but you have to not lose the key. Because if you don't have yeah. the key, you can't get the files back. That's what protects your files from the bad guys. Uh, but it means it'll protect it from you too if you don't keep that key somewhere. Yeah. And use a separate key for a separate backup so we don't use the key for like 50 okay. different backups. So use because a there's no individual way to, key for each of those. There's, there's no way to delete stuff from the cloud. So separate keys means when you want to delete some data, you just destroy the key. But yes, Throw it don't out. lose the key. Uh, I know someone from FreeBSD uh, who had to pay a lot of money to some drive recovery experts uh, to get their key back off a failed disk in order to download their backups and restore them. Oh, yeah. They didn't, you know, print it and laminate it and put it in a safe deposit box or something. Back walled, yeah, somewhere safe yeah. that uh, you can't uh, lose it easily. So yeah, check out Tarsnap. Their documentation is uh, comprehensive. And uh, it will rest uh, you or make you rest much easier knowing that this uh, backup of yours is secured in the cloud. Yep. Okay, up to feedback and questions. Uh, first of all, we need to uh, tell you that you sh should send us a bit more feedback and questions because we are running low. Uh, if you have anything to ask about the show or about the BSD, send that to feedback at bsdnow.tv so we'll 
cover it in a future episode. Yes, also, a bunch of people owe us BSD CAN trip reports, including you. you know, if you went to BSD you know CAN, who you are. Uh, if you went to BSD CAN, share your experience with all of us, especially if it was your first time. And, yeah. you know, what could we do better next year? Uh, what should people make sure not to miss when they go? Uh, what was it like being there for the first time? We found that the trip reports are the best way to convince new people to start coming is to hear about how good somebody else's first time experience was. So, you know, Dave, I'm looking at you. I want a trip report. <laughs> uh, but, you know, lots of other people owe me trip reports. So get writing. Send them feedback at bsdnow.tv. Yep, and uh, then we'll share But we did get one email this morning. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jason wrote in and said, way back on an episode, uh, I don't remember when, you guys talked about an appliance that runs FreeBSD that can be used to provide uh, SSH access to other network services uh, and could you know, do full session recordings of everything and, and it's basically a security appliance. Uh, I think it even handled remote desktop and so on. Do you recall what that was? Yes, yeah, that we was do. the Fudu, F-U-D-O. Like sudo, but with an F instead of an S. Uh, and that's made by Wheel Systems by our friends uh, Pavel and uh, Marius and Conrad and a bunch of other people. Um, mm -hmm. And yes, it does. I can record remote desktop, VNC, HTTP and HTTPS, uh, Oracle, MySQL, a bunch of other protocols. And basically, you stick it in front of your servers and allows you to monitor everything that the sysadmins and the contractors and anybody else that you allow access to the servers are doing. And it's a great way to uh, keep track of what's going on in your network. Yep, for like yep. security and, features, uh, or if, if you're, you're a bank or an insurance yep. company that needs to keep records of all the things that were going on. Yes, and Tuesday, uh, June 19th, uh, which was yesterday when we were recording this, was F National FreeBSD Day. Woohoo! Yeah, FreeBSD got 25 years old. Yes. Wow, uh, that's FreeBSD a lot. FreeBSD turned 25 uh, yesterday. Uh, and lots of people were telling interesting stories about FreeBSD Day. Yeah, how how long they are using it or what they are using it for. Yeah. And yeah, it's Nicholas just great Sizing to read all was, of those. Uh, talking about starting using FreeBSD in 4.7 and talking about that. Um, we have Jason here talking about how he discovered uh, while hanging out with a bunch of friends and doing some network scanning stuff. Um, people we met at FOSDEM doing interesting stuff. Um, IX Systems, of course, uh, couldn't, uh, you know, be let, uh, pulled back to set up their horns and do a group picture. So that's nice to see. And they were also yeah, or uh, our friend uh, Olivia Robert, who became a FreeBSD committer in 1995 after writing part of the original FAQ uh, and rewriting it in SGML docbook. Um, and then basically been using FreeBSD and 386BSD uh, since 1992. So he was actually using one of the predecessors to FreeBSD. Oh, wow. That's, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's even way before so our that time. He's been using BSD for 26 years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's so, uh, somebody had a, a screenshot of an old FreeBSD 5.2 machine with 4,000 days of uptime. Oh, yeah. <laughs> See, it's what we said all the time, it's reliable, it's stable, people should take a look or uh, use it. Yep. And it's just great how many people posted stuff and, you know, yeah. showed stickers and uh, their personal experiences. 
you know, uh, BSD has been around a long time, but it's still modern. Uh, it does a very good job of balancing being modern and having new stuff while being stable and not changing up from underneath you when you're trying to use it. Yeah, I remember Henning Brower's t-shirt, uh, one of his t-shirts that says, old is not dead. Yep. You know? So, uh, 25 years and counting, we are aiming for another 25 years at least. Yep. So, and if you want to join that, then there are ways to, you know, not just listen to BSD now, of course, but also contribute to the free BSD projects or any BSD projects in particular to keep that, you know, vital and healthy for the next 25 years. Indeed. So, uh, thank you for watching. We look forward to your feedback and your trip reports. You know, the trip reports. The, the ones you were supposed to send. Yeah. All right. Yeah. See you next week with more BSD now.